Reading, short and deep. Hi, this is Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, the nine billion names of God, by Arthur C. Clarke. Jesse, I'm so glad that you recommended this story. It is uh, enormously famous, uh, even among Clark's works, and he is quite, quite famous as a science fiction writer, as well as a science writer. One of the things that I find so amazing, though, about this story is that in structure, it's so simple. Mm -hmm. Uh, a, A llama, a Dalai Lama kind of fellow, comes to New York and engages the uh, services of a company that makes what today we would call a computer. But the stories from 1953, computers are quite, quite primitive from our current viewpoint. In fact, all they do is compute. They just deal with numbers. So the story is a little forward-looking in that it wants to have this company have a machine go through many, many permutations of letters, enough that will be fulfilled what this Lama believes is God's command that humanity must construct all of his true names, and that will bring the end of the universe, because our purpose will have been fulfilled. Uh, The people from the West the head of the company and the two technicians he sends to Tibet to uh, actually have the project run, of course, don't believe in this at all. Um, But at the end, as the two technicians are leaving, going down the mountain from a monastery, a lamasery that they call Shangri-La in in reference to the famous book and movie Lost Horizon, um, they look up. And as it says in the famous last line, overhead, without any fuss, one by one, the stars were going out. That's a pretty simple story. Even giving some detail about it uh, only takes a minute or two to to explain. Mm -hmm. And yet it got to be so famous. What is it that you think we should talk about? What is it that made you want us to discuss a story that seems to be so easy to just get across. Well, I uh, I think Arthur C. Clarke does this in a lot of his writing, but I think this this is a very distilled version of of that effect. Um, it has a lot of the strangely spiritual um, strivings that he he seems to be going for, and yet. It is also s- completely skeptical. Um, two of the characters are, you know, thinking that these llamas are crazy. And yet that uh, sort of wonder at, at, at the stars and the universe is, is, is there, wrapped up in science and technology. It, it epitomizes Arthur C. Clarke to me, the story. But also it... It tells us, I think, that we can be wrong in massive ways, and that makes us doubt even our skepticism. 
which I think is cool. I like that. So we can, it teaches us to be skeptical of skepticism. Indeed, because ultimately the, you know, the Westerners who think these, these llamas are crazy for wanting to spend money on a fruitless task that's already taken them 300 years or that they thought would take 15,000 years and were perfectly happy going about this ridiculous task. Um, they were right. What did they know? How did they see this? That they were right. And the universe, it's so cool that one of the, one of the lines in the story is, is that, uh, it's not the end of the universe. It's nothing as trivial as that. It's like, what? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. It's the llama llama who says that, that it's not as trivial as that. Right. And, the, you know, the fact that the, the stars are going out without any fuss. Um, what does that mean? What, what happens next? You know, I started to think about that word fuss, uh, that line. Um, let me get it and quote it exactly right. Overhead, without any fuss, the stars were going out. Um, so overhead sort of forces us to put our eyes toward heaven. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the word heaven occurs in the preceding paragraph. Um, George, one of the two technicians, lifted his eyes to heaven. And he's always been uh, a man mired in the earth. Uh, he hasn't looked up once. When we first see him, he's standing on the parapet of the lamasery and looking down into the valley. I mean, he's just he, he never looks up until this moment. And here it's not called sky, it's called heaven. Um, And he looks up and then it says, parenthetically, there is always a last time for everything. And I'm thinking, it's the last time George is gonna look up, but it's also maybe the first time George has looked up because he's that kind of a guy. So overhead is an important word. Overhead, without any fuss. Well, the stars were going out. Who's fuss? I mean. The star, how does a star be fussy? I mean, fussy means undue concern or uh, too much troubling about something that isn't worth that much effort. Um, unwarranted anxiety about small things. How could a star ever manifest that to human eyes? What's going on there when we're told that the stars without any fuss were going out? And and that phrase going out, is it being extinguished or is it leaving the confines of the domain in which they exist to go into some wider realm? Given how the story works and that this is presumably the fulfillment of a divine plan, um, I can't help but wonder if we don't have Again, this kind of doubleness of meaning that you're talking about with skepticism of skepticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, what would fussy stars be? Are they just a projection of humanity onto the stars? Or do the stars themselves have lives? Um, which, by the way, is what happens in Stapleton Starmaker, which Arthur C. Clarke has said um, in biographical statements was um, 
an enormous influence on him. Actually, an earlier book of Stapledon's Last and First Men, in which the stars also have lives, is the one that he names, that Clark names specifically as converting his vision of the universe when Clark was 12 years of age. So maybe he means stars going out in a whole different way. Maybe, maybe we are supposed to read this not simply as what's wrong with these Westerners, but both the West and the East collaborate in fulfilling an order which is both scientific and spiritual. Mm-hmm. It, the the uh, the other places you see this in Clark's writing, you know, he has a an awe that is normally reserved for, you know, God is, is projected as the awe at the size of the universe, the awe at the, the deepness of, of time and how old the universe is. And so when we see it in the, in this story, um, it puts us on, in our place in the same way that Douglas Adams does, right? Uh-huh. He, in the first chapter of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the earth is destroyed. Right. And the rest of the story takes place um, with great fuss for the main character. But everyone else is perfectly fine. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Uh, the story is called The Nine Billion Names of God. Um, I, have, I have some observations about that, um, if I may. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the number nine billion is, I think, far from random. It sounds like just a very big number, but nine billion is three squared times 10 to the three squared. We have uh, a, a story here that's full of sort of magic numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the lamas have been working on producing the nine billion names of God, or so they think it will be ne- the number they'll be needed, for 300 years. And they've calculated that they need another 15,000, which is five times 10 to the third. Five times three times 10 to the third. I mean, the only time we get a number that sort of seems like it might not be used for special purpose, uh, I mean, in numerological uh, symbology, mm-hmm. is when um, Chuck realizes that there's about a week to go before um, the the airplane is going to come to pick up Chuck and George and take them away. Uh, But the computer is going to be done chugging out these names. That is, it will finish its task, humanity's task, in only four days. And they have to figure out a way to slow down the computer so as to turn four into seven. Mm -hmm. Now, that four is a unique number in the whole story. As I look at the cross, I mean Jesus's cross, what I see is a quadripartite division of the world. It happens, as we know, that this symbol arose at a time when in the Hellenic world, the 
predominance of quadripartite um, categorization, which we see still in the Mandela's and of the Native Americans and the swastika mm. of, of India, the, the, the dyads of East Asia and the, the quadrads, uh, the quartets, if you like, of South Asia finally get reduced. The quartet gets reduced to the trinity uh, in the Triskelion, the, the three running legs joined at the hip, that common mm -hmm. uh, symbol of the Greeks. So historically, we go from two to four to three. And you see that at the same more or less period where we have a quadripartite cross and a triune god. Now, as these fellows are trying to get away, they're trying to go back to Western civilization, um, they're trying to turn four into seven, right? They're trying to get the, the unity of the week from Sabbath to Sabbath. One could say, but oh, well, maybe not. If it starts on a Tuesday, it would end, you know, not on the Sabbath. But as they are going down, leaving the lamasery, they've managed to slow the computer down and they are leaving on the seventh day. You know, they've turned four into seven. They're going down and they look at the valley below them. And certainly it, re it reads, um, there she is, called Chuck, pointing down into the valley. Ain't she beautiful? She certainly was, thought George. The battered old DC-3 lay at the end of the runway like a tiny silver cross. And I can't help but wonder, now the DC-3 in reality was probably the most significant um, airplane in the Second World War. It was introduced about 1935. It was such a workhorse. It was so effective that I looked this up. As of 2014, there were still several hundred of them in commercial operation around the world. Wow. And this airplane just, it's, it's immortal. And people already understood that after the war because of the enormous stability of these things, even under fire. So here we are in 1953. And Instead of looking down and seeing a tiny silver cross with a triune JC, they look down not for JC3, but DC3 <laughs> on a tiny silver cross. I don't think that can be entirely accidental, right? I mean, mm -hmm. either Clark is saying, look how small that is, you know, the cross symbol, Western culture, you know, or it can be saying, even in the heart of Eastern culture, there still is an equivalent symbol of salvation toward which Westerners have learned to strive. And after all, striving for salvation is a human urge. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a way in which the numerology of uh, 9 billion is meant to, to show us that there is some way to amalgamate both the East and the West. The, the East comes up with their alphabet within which they permute and generate these names. And it's an alphabet that's nine letters long. Again, three squared, um, nine letters long. And they permute them to come out with nine billion names. And they're going to do it in, you know, just this certain few, few days, a hundred, in fact. Um, and again, you know, magical numbers. So. 
I think the nine billion is chosen to talk about a kind of systematic perfection that even if, as I imagine is the case for Arthur Clarke, you're not a man of mindless faith. And by mindless, I don't mean to be derogatory. I mean, you're not looking for scientific evidence. You just have a man of spiritual faith. Um, even if you're not a man of spiritual faith, you still may have faith in the order of the universe. And that can be represented by mathematics. It can be represented by science. The trick is not that there is or isn't an order. It's whether or not we will recognize the order. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's one of the reasons that nine billion comes up so much, that threes are so important here, that exponents of three are so important here, and so on. Um, Clark got um, honors in physics and mathematics at university. Did you, uh, have you heard of Bitcoin mining? Yes. You know how that works? Yeah. This, uh, this story was written well before that was in anybody's mind, but I don't think prime numbers were... Uh, a new invention. In fact, you know, this is this is kind of a thing for math mathematicians, people who get really into math. They they think that there's something very interesting going on in math, and I'm sure Clark felt the same way. Uh, in this case, we're talking about letters, but they're not that different because the monks have you know they're not just going to go through every permutation and write every a possible combination. They only want non-ridiculous combinations. They don't want, uh, you know, the name of God with seven L's in a row, right? They wanted maximum three, they say. Actually, I think, um, I think they so, say that it can't have three. Um, no more than three, I think. It, it, oh. Either way, either way, I think one of the, uh, George or, or, or no, it's the doctor at the beginning of the story says, Surely two. And he says, no, three. Um, but You're right. In, no, letter in, must occur, no, more, no letter must occur more than three times in succession. That's right. So um, whether you know we think something's ridiculous or not, there is a certain interesting special relationship between uh, prime numbers that is not related to... Um, how they look to us, but rather how they divide properly, how they multiply properly, and and how useful they are. So, in mining for prime numbers, as we as we do, we find they're incredibly useful for encryption. Um, we find they're incredibly useful for um, doing any sort of. Um, programming and locking and unlocking and it seems to me that this story sort of stumbles into that sort of same idea maybe not accidentally maybe deliberately and that if we can just put the right keys into the right locks we can open up uh, a secret that is out there and it it th these monks seem to know a secret that are very happy to be unlocked and I think that the fact that at the end of the story um, the monks aren't I mean 
really, this is the story of a death cult, right? A doomsday cult <laughs> that just happens to be right. Except the doomsday seems very soft because of the lack of fuss. None of the monks are particularly worried. They're not, um, you know, preparing for the rapture. They seem to think of it not as a negative thing, but as a positive thing. And if if it were to be a kind of unlocking, um, it's also sort of undercut by the fact that as the lights are going out, what does that mean for us? We're unlocking something maybe not even for ourselves. I think this is really a, a cool concept that he's got going just inside the story, and it's never stated. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think that this is how we are most consciously, on Clark's part, I know I'm projecting here, um, expected to take childhood's end when the world is destroyed, mm -hmm. but it transforms so that humanity becomes something different from humanity, but, but greater, and we're not supposed to regret the end. I think, um, I think that's what's going on here as well. The end is supposed to be a good thing, and that little silver cross lets us know that, you know, the mechanical Western mind um, has been able to be helpful here by fulfilling God's uh, will earlier than it otherwise would have been fulfilled. Uh, let me give you some observations about the word name and the names in this book, I mean, in this story, because it is the nine billion names of God. You were talking about the prime numbers and getting just the key to unlock something. Well, that, of course, is what true names do in magic. Mm -hmm. If you know the real name of something, then that might give you the ability to control it. Um, you're not supposed to, I mean, an Orthodox Jew will not pronounce the Tetragrammaton, the four letters that are God's personal name. And when they see that, if they are praying, they pronounce another word that means the Almighty or our Lord. And if they are not praying and they see those four letters, they just say Hashem, the name. Um, because the name itself is numinous. It has spirit within it. And that's what these guys are doing. They're looking for the articulation of every possible name. And when all of those names have been articulated, then God's existence has been fulfilled and something new can come up. So I started thinking about the names. There are only four characters in the story. Each of them has a name, and they are each named in a different way. Um, the story begins, this is a slightly unusual request, said Dr. Wagner, with what he hoped was commendable restraint. Now, I'd like to point out that Wagner has at least two meanings that are relevant to what you were just saying, Jesse. The first is that Wagner is the name of Faust's assistant. Right. Mm. And if, if the person who really has all of the possible insights is the Lama to whom he is talking, then Wagner simply becomes his assistant, which in German uh, folklore um, would readily be identified as the half-brother of the sorcerer's apprentice. 
the guy who without proper guidance will use incredible powers, but, you know, create bad problems. Um, the other thing I think we think of with Wagner is Richard Wagner, whose greatest work is the ring, the, the, the ring cycle, which culminates in the opera, which in German is Gotterdammerung, but in English is the Twilight of the Gods. That's right. The Twilight of the Gods is the German translation of the Norse Ragnarok. Ragnarok is the end of the world in Norse mythology. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll remind you that it's called the Twilight of the Gods because many of the the gods, it's a pantheistic uh, religion, many of the gods do die in this enormous great battle uh, that happens um, at Ragnarok, at Gautodamerong. In Norse mythology, the universe is structured around an axle, right? Where, where down here um, in Midyard, the Middle Earth, Tolkien <laughs> picks that up, um, Niflheim, the, the world of darkness, is down below. It's cold at the roots of this axle, which is a great single ash tree known as Yggdrasil. And the gods are up, you know, at the top in the leaves and the branches. And there are certain creatures that run up and down the tree. This Yggdrasil is the world tree, which structures the whole universe. And after Ragnarok, after that incredible battle, Yggdrasil opens up and out comes, or at least this is what's predicted, of course, it's eschatological, out comes a perfect man and woman. Mm. So that the destruction of the world, even requiring the death of the gods, or at least many of them, leads ultimately not to my salvation or yours. You know, we humans of this phase of human history are all destroyed by this battle. But the man and woman who come out, in a sense, get to start paradise all over again. They are perfect. It's like going back to Eden and getting a a do-over. So, you know, when you were saying that somehow this is this is a, a destruction that nonetheless is to be embraced and it somehow there's something good in it. I think that that Clark wants us to think of that kind of destruction, that we who are too limited in our vision, we in the West, will see this as a bad thing when we realize it's happening. But those who fully understand it will see that the twilight of the gods is actually the dawn of a perfected humanity. Mm-hmm. Now, wow! If, if that makes some sense, let me go on with the names a little. Okay. Sure. So we have four characters. Doctor Wagner is talking with a man who is known only as the Lama. Oh, they call him Sam Jaffe after the the, character the two technicians the call him that. Right. But we know that's not his name. That's sort of a. He's an actor. Oh, no, 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 right. I mean, Sam Jaffe plays the Dalai Lama in the 1937 movie of Lost Horizon. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm saying these two technicians, uh, uh, George Hanley and Chuck, um, call him Sam because he's the Dalai Lama, although we're told that they recognize that he, in fact, looks nothing like Sam Jaffe. But they call him that because of his position. Um, So... Clark is reminding us of this movie. Now, this is a 1953 story. The movie comes out in 1937, 
I think the book it's based on comes out in 35, something like that. So this is uh, an image that has kept itself alive for, for uh, about 20 years, and people get it. Right? So they're importing that. That's the Westerns making entertainment out of something that really should be more serious. But so the, the Lama is called that by these two guys, but not by the narrator. The narrator doesn't tell us his name. Right. So I looked up Lama, and it turns out that Lama basically means, etymologically, teacher. As does doctor, etymologically, Mm-hmm. teacher. So we have these two guys who are in dialogue together. Dr. Wagner, who never has a fir- never has a given name, it's only a, a surname, and the Lama. They both are known by the, their titles, but the Lama is known only by his title, by his position, uh, his place in the universe, as it were, whereas Dr. Wagner has to be distinguished from all the other doctors. This is, I think, part of the distinction between the East and the West that the story makes. Mm-hmm. Then once Dr. Wagner accepts the, uh, the assignment and sends his two technicians to keep the machine running in, uh, in Tibet, we get at first, um, George Hanley looking down from the parapet at the valley far below and the neat little fields of uh, farm. And it seems a little bit like the English countryside, but from a much greater height than one ever sees the English countryside, uh, except by airplane. And then he gets to talk to Chuck. So George Hanley has a regular forename, a regular given name and a regular surname. Chuck has only a diminutive and no surname. And they have a dialogue. So I must say that when I remembered this story, I remembered them as being sort of indistinguishable from each other, those two guys. Mm-hmm. But they are not. I read with more care this time. George means earth worker. The George comes from geo in Greek, like mm-hmm. geology, and erg, you know, force or work. So George is someone who works in the earth. Sometimes it's translated as farmer. But it means earth worker. Hanley, by the way, is an old English and and means high meadow. So great. Here he is. He's high and he's looking down on the meadow below. Here's George Hanley. Every single time we see this guy in the story, he is involved with the earth. He's involved with physically doing stuff. He, in fact, never looks up. Although clearly he's in a place that was designed for its closeness to, to heaven. At the end, when they're going down the mountain together on the, the tough mountain ponies, he says something, George does, to Chuck, and Chuck doesn't answer. He turns around and he sees Chuck looking up at the sky. And he still doesn't look up until mm-hmm. Chuck tells him to look up. So... What's the difference between these two guys? What, what is Chuck? Chuck is the diminutive for Charles. And Charles comes from the German Karl. And Karl simply means a man. So we have a small, humble man with this guy who sees himself in the earth. And they have a dialogue. In their dialogue, what we find is that the earth worker is the perfect employee 
when he thinks about leaving early, he says, oh, no, I can't. I've never left a job without it being complete before. He is, you know, the product of capitalism. He's not the product of science. He's the technician. Dr. Wagner is the product of science. These two guys, Dr. Wagner and George Hanley, are on the side of Western technological industrial science. These other two guys, the Lama and Chuck, are humble. Chuck is just small. He sees himself as secondary. He's doing what he can. It's interesting. He goes into the Lama and the Lama asks him, did you ever wonder what we're doing here? You know, why we're doing it? And Chuck reports to George that he said, yes. And then the Lama tells him. I think what's not said there, and this is a, a, an index of what a good writer Clark is, what we recognize is that Chuck, although he had wondered, never confronted authority. He mm -hmm. just did what he was supposed to do, just the way the Lama is doing what he's supposed to do. So the Lama and Chuck are both in their different registers, people of humility, while George and Dr. Wagner think they're on top of everything and know what's going on. The story, I think, lets us know, as we see these four different kinds of people with four different naming conventions, that we really need them all. We really need them all. And so you have to ask, or at least I have to ask myself, who is it who needs them all, right? Who needs them all? Now I want to go back to the end of the story. Chuck didn't reply. I, uh, when So George says, wonder if the computer's finished its run. It was due about now. Chuck didn't reply. So George swung round in his saddle. He could just see Chuck's face, a white oval turned towards the sky. Look, whispered Chuck. And only then, when he's told to, George lifted his eyes to heaven. And then parenthetically, this is the last, second from last sentence, the next to last sentence of the whole story, there is always a last time for everything. And I've got to ask, who says that? That can't be a human being. There is, in that parenthesis, the, the projection of a narrator who knows what God knows. Mm -hmm. right? And somehow the story that Clark has written has, without our recognizing it, put us in touch with an order of being that is simply beyond the order of being that we recognize in Western culture and that is accepted mindlessly by Dr. Wagner, George Hanley, and Chuck. But at the end, this higher order is what dominates the story. And I think, if I may, that offers me one answer to the question you raised before. How can this destruction also be good? It can be good because the way the story is constructed, instead of thinking what a horror this is, we come away feeling reassured that this is really part of some wonderful, all-encompassing order. 
So do you think that wraps up the story? <laughs> There's always more to say, isn't there? Indeed.